3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays our respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Well, good morning, listeners. You are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855am. It is just gone 7 o'clock in the morning, and this is Priya. Um, I'm currently flying solo in the studio, but I may be joined a little bit later by Inez. And yeah, how are you all doing today? It's been it's been a week. Uh, last weekend, it was a weekend. I think uh, a lot of our eyes were on or should definitely have been on the incredible community picket that ran for about three days at WebDoc. Um, just incredible work by the activists who basically worked in shifts to make sure that the community picket was upheld, this peaceful protest, um, basically preventing uh, a an Israeli uh, ship, the Zim Ganges, from uh, unloading its cargo by preventing workers from getting into the dock. And uh, it was a really, really successful community action. We don't know how much money it has cost uh, the Zim shipping company, but definitely a lot. And just an example of how collective action can really uh, put pressure on, uh, you know, on genocidaires uh, on uh, colonialist powers and at a time where, you know, it feels like so many uh, appeals to to parliament, to politicians, to, uh, you know, to try and uh, get people who maintain the status quo to listen. Sometimes the most effective thing to do really is blocking the flow of capital. So once again, a shout out to everyone who is involved in the community picket. Incredible work and uh, once again, uh, Victoria Police have continued to show that they um, they are the protectors of property, not people. We all know this to be true and, uh, you know, condemn their extremely violent actions against protesters, which Melbourne activists legal support are looking into at the moment. So if you are uh, somebody who was there, somebody who captured footage of the way that the police broke up the peaceful protest on Monday or uh, have any footage uh, that might be legally relevant in terms of raising concerns about policing at the picket, uh, you can head to Melbourne Activist Legal Support's website. Uh, I believe that's mals.org.au, M-A-L-S.org.au, but I can double-check that and we'll put it in our show notes as well just to help them uh, collect information uh, in case uh, you know, any any concerns need to be raised from a legal perspective um, and anything can be pursued. So uh, we have a big show as usual for you today. Um, we might potentially be joined by uh, Declan Ferber-Gillick, uh, an Arndaman and member of Black People's Union, who's going to be speaking with Inez about the WebDoc community picket um, at about 7.15. But if not, uh, you are going to hear... Um, 
a comment from uh, Boonwurrung elder Janet Galpin, who gave a welcome to country and discussed her ancestor, Manorlar Jenna, at the annual Tanner Minerway and Moorboy Heener commemoration that was held this past Saturday, the 20th of January, at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Streets in Melbourne's city. Now, Tanner Minerway and Moorboy Heener were two Tasmanian Aboriginal freedom fighters who were brought to and hanged in Victoria, the first people to be officially executed in Melbourne. And this commemoration has been going for many, many years now. Um, It's really important uh, as we lead into Invasion Day to honor all of the all of the, uh, you know, Aboriginal resistance fighters who have held the line against invasion and colonial occupation. And, um, you know, look at the through line to Aboriginal activists today who continue to maintain their sovereignty and fight for liberation. Um, after that, at 7.30, we're going to be joined by Narita Waite, a Yorta Yorta Naranjari and Tongarong person and CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And Narita's going to join us to speak about VAL's 2024 Invasion Day webinar, which will be running today from 4 p.m. AEDT. Now, this year's discussion is going to focus on treaties and First Nations justice with overseas First Nations legal expert Andrea Hilland Casey, who's a member of the, uh, the Newark Nation on the Pacific coast of Canada, and Nati Kahungunu academic Dr. Carwin Jones, who joins Narita and Ruben Berg, a Gunajamara man and the co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria. So registrations for today's conversation are still open at tinyurl.com forward slash ID24 webinar. Get in quick. Um, you want to make sure that you don't miss this. These conversations are always extremely important and I think really set the tone as we head into Invasion Day as well um, and set the kind of tone as well for uh, maintaining solidarity with First Nations peoples uh, at the start of every year. Um, after that, we're going to hear an excerpt of the plenary discussion between Wayne Coco Wharton and Duran Bunjalini Robbie Thorpe, which was held on day two of the Australian Student Environment Network's Victoria Training Camp last week. And in this conversation, Uncle Coco uh, spoke about honouring a legacy of First Nations resistance and what it means to keep fighting for freedom against the genocidal Australian colony. Now, make sure to follow Treaty Before Voice for updates on how to keep supporting sovereign First Nations resistance organising, guided by staunch lifelong activists, including Uncle Coco and Uncle Robbie on both Invasion Day and Year Round. And we'll have more information about that in our show notes. Um, And then after that, we are going to listen back to a segment from a webinar convened by Hirak and Black People's Union on Saturday, the 20th of January, which was titled Towards Anti-Colonialism, Anti-Imperialism and Liberation. And this event featured Kieran Stewart-Asherton and Leah House of Black People's Union in conversation with Amal Nasser and Jamal Nabulsi and Lena Kolelat of the Palestinian collective Hirak. So the excerpt we're going to play today includes commentary by Kieran and Leah on decolonizing your mind, what real solidarity means, and debunking the con of reconciliation. All of this and more coming up uh, very, very shortly on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. 
Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 25th of January. Police officers attacked people at a peaceful pro-Palestinian rally over the weekend at WebDoc in Port Melbourne. A team of trained independent legal observers from Melbourne Activist Legal Support reported multiple uses of pepper spray against people who did not pose any threat to police, as well as police charging areas that medics had set up to treat injured protesters and use of force against medics by police. Police officers on horseback used dangerous crowd control tactics, including actively pushing people onto the M1 freeway and pushing people in the direction of moving vehicles. Observers also reported that a person in a wheelchair was grabbed and dragged out of their chair by police, and many instances of officers aggressively pushing and yelling at people trying to communicate their concerns or move away from the police-led violence. In other news, as Israel's genocide in Gaza continues, with the current attacks and blockade nearing three months, Indonesia has filed a new lawsuit against the Israeli occupation at the International Court of Justice. With this move, Indonesia joined South Africa, which filed the first lawsuit against Israel for committing genocide against Palestinians in Gaza, the hearings for which were held last week. While Indonesia's case against Israel is welcomed by some, West Papuan activists and advocates say Indonesia's case is overshadowed by its history of settler oppression and the atrocities against West Papuan people that continue into this day. Also in headlines... Following the news last week of excessively long call wait times for Centrelink customers over the past nine years, reports have emerged of management crackdowns on staff. Centrelink call centre staff say they are being monitored minute by minute, including the length of their bathroom breaks, as part of management-led attempts to improve average call wait times. The Community and Public Service Union also noted it is concerned about reports that leaderboards detailing the worst performers on customer call times were being internally distributed. The union said Centrelink should prioritise staff well-being and that there is a deeply entrenched cultural problem in Services Australia. Finally, in headlines, deep concerns about the mistreatment of children in youth prisons have been shared in an open letter from a group of advocates, including First Nations rights organizations, human rights groups, and legal, social, and youth services. This week marks one year since the Victorian government failed to meet Australia's obligations to the United Nations Anti-Torture Protocol, which would require independent oversight of all places of detention, including youth prisons. Amongst reports of human rights abuses in youth prisons, including solitary confinement of children and the use of spit hoods, this latest letter highlights the Victorian government's ongoing failure to comply with international human rights law. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 25th of January, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. 
We show up, take no more. Black at the heart, take no more. True in our love, take no more. Tune in from 8.30 to 4 o'clock on Friday the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. Between 10 and midday, we'll be broadcasting live from the March in Melbourne. And throughout the day, 3CR's Blackfella broadcasters will be bringing you voices of the elders, truth-telling, critical yarns with grassroots activists, deadly black music, and honouring warriors past and present in the struggle for sovereignty, land back, an end to genocide and a treaty. So keep it tuned in to 3CR on Friday the 26th of January from 8.30 to 4 o'clock. If you've been to protests, rallies or actions in Burn City, then chances are you've heard us. Renegade Solidarity Audio Force are the noise behind the cause, amplifying the voices of resistance on the streets since 2017. A volunteer crew of artists, activists, sound techs, musicians and troublemakers, we provide the sound systems to make sure that your demands are undeniably loud and clear. To bring the decibels, we need your help to upgrade and maintain our equipment. Join us at Miscellanea on Saturday the 27th of January from 9pm for a Renegade Solidarity Audio Force fundraiser in collaboration with Secret World Records. Featuring Ramsey, Marushti, Pataphysics, Lizzie Nice, Joe Dubs and Enders. Follow us on the socials at renegadesolidarity.audioforce and tickets are available through the link in our bio. That's Saturday the 27th of January from 9pm at Miscellanea in the city. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit wildlife emergency response service dedicated to helping wildlife in need across Victoria. Our volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned wildlife. If you see wildlife that may need our help, on the road, in your backyard or in the bush, please contact us immediately on 84007300. That's 84007300. To donate or to become a volunteer, visit wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. No more whispering in our arms. Gonna rise up to break these chains. Stop these killing games. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. We demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday at the State Library. Ischia Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. 
We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we are crossing to Inez, who's going to be speaking with Declan from Black People's Union. Inez? Amazing. Thank you so much, Priya. Um, yeah, so I will be speaking with Declan Fruber-Gillick, who is an Aboriginal writer and political organiser and representative of the Black People's Union. And we're going to be talking about the community picket that had occurred for over the past few days at WebDoc, um, just for Zim, uh, just, yeah, as a community picket to stop Zim shipping. But thank you so much for joining us here today, Declan. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure to be on um, Community Radio. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for making the time. I know you're very busy. <laughs> um, but yeah, maybe we could start off with, for maybe those who don't know, what the purpose of the community picket was over the last four days. Certainly. Um, so the community picket began on um, Friday afternoon and it was called by the um, Unionist Palestine group um, and it was supported and implemented in action by um, a whole range of um, individuals and elements and different um, political um, groups and, and factions within the community. And the function and the purpose of the whole picket was to very specifically target um, VICT Terminal um, down at Melbourne Docklands. And VICT Terminal has a contract um, with Zim Shipping, which is Israel's national freighting company. And so um, we, we understand uh, and we recognise that that makes uh, Zim Shipping um, not just not just complicit in, but highly active um, financially and, and in, in supplying Israel and has and has been for a long time. Um, prior to the original, the first Nakba in '48, um, Zim was set up as um, as Israel's freighter. So, because Vict VICT has that contract, um, the purpose of the picket was to draw attention to um, to draw attention to that, but also to stop work being done at that terminal, so that the Zim Ganges ship, which is a giant ship that was sitting out in the um, in the bay, couldn't actually come in to um, load and unload its goods. And so um, the way that we did that was to um, engage with workers at VICT Terminal um, and specifically only turn away those workers um, after after conversation and after significant canvassing and information was shared, um, only turn away those workers who operate the, um, the semi-automatic crane systems um, that, have, that operate down there at WebDoc. Um, so what that means is that no goods could go on or off ships, and um, and the Zim Ganges ship had to sit out in the bay. And so we wanted to do that specifically to um, put a put pressure on that the, the, the vein of um, of the flow of capital um, that goes to and from VICT and to and from the Melbourne docks and to and from the Australian economy um, out into um, the Israeli war machine via Zim shipping. So we wanted to disrupt that work, and that's what we did for over four days. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much for that breakdown. I think that really helps to contextualise it um, and how important it was. I think I also wanted to ask you, what is, I guess, the significance of this particular community picket? Because, you know, we held it for over four days. Um, Kind of everybody came together within their capacity and supported it in whatever way they could and supported people who also went. Um, And I also know that, like, the VA... CT. Um, in an email, they said that we had, you know, disrupted for so, like, a lot of uh, disrupted for capital for 
a few days, a lot of money. Uh, they even called it a critical choke point <laughs> at one point. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how significant it actually was. Absolutely. It's a great question. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize that, um, yeah, this, this action and this form of action, it goes further than um, the kinds of, you know, demonstration, the very justified and appropriate demonstration by people that we've seen here in Australia um, over the last, over three months of this genocide. And it, it's different and it goes further in that it was not merely a spectacle. Um, it was not merely, you know, voicing dissent. Uh, it was not merely mass mobilisation to demand change. Um, it was actually a strategic and logistically well thought out um, operation that that um, that actually caused a material impact, um, and and you can see that immediately from VICT's response and from the response of Big Pole, um, which is that this kind of action makes a serious difference. If it didn't make a serious difference, you wouldn't have hundreds, of, hundreds and hundreds of um, riot police down there on Monday smashing out smashing our picket up. And so, mm-hmm. this was there were. There was a lot of debate on the picket line about, about how far to take this, and there were elements of the picket um, and elements of the organising, the different organising committees that um, wanted to wanted to pull back after a few hours of success or pull back after a day or so of success. Um, but I think what was really significant, and, and by success I mean after, you know, the, the, the strategy was working. You know, we were keeping the chip out there and we were preventing the work being done. And so there were elements that really wanted to um, continue to hold that pressure on and continue to escalate and when we say escalate we just mean we just mean refusing to leave you know all we were doing was peacefully disrupting a particular form of work from happening um and we were doing that in a in a very respectful uh and and a very uh you know and a diplomatic with the terminal as best we could and so by escalate we just mean um maintain the peaceful pressure um but yeah the 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 significance is that um it really really worked and you can tell it worked because the cameras started rolling in. We forced VICT to make a statement, um, and we've got international international news coverage from um, from uh, organisations like Al Jazeera and Middle East Eye, and on picket lines and in protest movements and action movements over in the UK. You know, we're getting people texting us saying, "Hey, we know about this. We see this." So the significance is we've demonstrated that um, that the community, community, even a small, a relatively small group of people. Um, can organise themselves and um, and take um, very disciplined and strategic action in a way that not only has an immediate and very high impact, um, but it also inspires other people around the world to understand that this kind of thing is possible. Um, and, and, and so that's why we call for that and we want to see more of it and we will be doing more of exactly this kind of thing. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think knowing that it has had such a strong impact on capital. It is demonstrating to different areas of the world and as well as us that this is this is possible. This is possible in our communities. Um, I'm wondering if you think there are, you know, looking back, if you feel that there are lots of wins. I guess what what are your what is your perception of that? Because I think it can be so easy for morale to kind of be, um, yeah, be diminished in a way. It's like, yeah, it was four days, um, uh, but cops came every day. And um, some people stayed, like, overnight for, like, 14 hours um, and were kind of like, I don't know when to sleep. I don't know. I think, yeah, some people may be feeling um, 
yeah, I guess a bit of like morale <laughs> being diminished a little bit. But yeah, I'm wondering if you can maybe highlight what some of the wins are and what it means for community capacity to kind of come together like that. Absolutely. Um, I think it's a great question. And, um, you know, it's always the case that after an action or after a significant piece of, you know, dedicated um, high-pressure high work, I mean, I work in the, I work in theatre, and every time you finish finish doing a high pressure show, um, there is that lull, and there is that kind of period of activism. Um, that's inevitable, um, and of course, there will be lots of um, discussions um, that come out of this, and, and there are things that didn't go perfectly, and you know, there's some some friendships that um, you know feel a bit split at the seams, and uh, there's certainly you know things to work on within the community. Um, but people should take a lot of heart. And people should take a lot of courage from the fact that um, we've really demonstrated that um, that uh, a, a relatively small group of people organised in organ, more or less organised um, in in various different factions worked together, struggled together to, um, to do something extremely um, powerful. And you know, there's a, a, aside from the immediate um, economic impact, which speaks for itself, um, we've we've taught ourselves and taught one another and come to realisations about how to do this exact kind of action, how to strategically implement um, like radical, um, radical material change. Um, and, and we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about um, how, the, how, the, how Victorport works. We've learned a lot about um, the relationship that workers have with Victorport and have with our movement. We've learned a lot about what the, the state of um, the public consciousness is around Palestine at this time in the genocide and um, you know, had and developed and, and further further enhanced our understanding of the public will and and also of the public capacity. So we've we've learnt we've learnt um, many new logistical techniques. Uh, we've 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 further consolidated who our friends are, and we've further consolidated who our um, you know who our who our political adversaries are in this situation. And so you know, the job of the job of activists um, right now is to do exactly what I'm doing, which is get out there, tell our narrative. Um, Make sure that people understand the who, what, when, where, and why, and make sure that people know that um, this is a huge win. This is an absolutely huge win, and it, and and we'll be taking it into the next stage um, of the struggle. Um, and I, and I also just want to say that you know there's a, there's, there can sometimes be a little bit of a, a misapprehension that um, because the ticket was closed down and because the cops came down and violently broke it up that that that, that, that was some sort of loss. Um, certainly, certainly. Uh, it's a loss of of sorts because the picket is no longer on, and so we lost the picket. Um, but a, a movement like this, within a severely, you know, um, uh, limited and de-radicalised, um, you know, um, community like we have in Australia, where unions are, are so shackled by the union busting laws and uh, all of the illegality that um, that exists around taking this kind of action um, in a, you know, in a in a in a a union-led way, um, what we've been able to demonstrate is that... Um, sorry, I lost my, lost my thought. Hang on. No, that's OK. Um, well, what we've been able to demonstrate is that, that, this, can, that this can happen. And... Um, oh, that's what I was going to say. One of the lessons is, in fact, that... Um, one of the lessons is, in fact, that... Oh, I've lost, I've lost my thought. Can you ask, ask no, the question No, that's OK. Again? That's all right. I think my kind of the last question I was going to ask you, which you kind of been alluding to, is I think colonization also really um, 
depends and relies on our exhaustion and our kind of morale being down, thinking like, you know, what's the point? Why should I keep doing this? Um, but like leaning on each other and not isolating yourself and coming together as a community is so important, not just for resistance or, you know, being part of disruption, but continuing to fight. So I'm wondering if you have any, I guess, last words on like what it means to like keep going and resist and come together and take like the, the learnings for this is kind of the, the last yeah, yeah. statement. Absolutely. And I can tie that in. I remembered what I was going to say in my answer to the last question. So I can sort of, I can finish on that and then I can tie into that. Yeah, sure. So, so there's, uh, what I was going to say is there's a perhaps a misapprehension that we lost something, um, but you know um, through through a fairly democratic process at the very end under significant police pressure, um, you know activists who were there on the gate who were who were heavily outnumbered and heavily outorganised by let's face it you know the armed wing of the state which is Vic Pol. Like we're never gonna we're never gonna win from a first picket because um, this is a long long struggle as Palestinians well know. And so, um, you know, to make that call that I that I made in, in, in collaboration and in consultation with other activists to to pull back and to leave um, from the picket under that significant police pressure, that I, I'm, I claim that as a win because we didn't lose a whole lot of activists to mass arrests and fines and injuries. Yeah. Um, we didn't we didn't have you know new and young and old activists um, brutalised on mass by police and and, and continue to do activism. So we've. We've radicalised people's consciousness. We've come away with a win where people understand their own power and people haven't been intimidated or beaten back. And so that is a huge win and I'll claim that win and I'll continue to claim that win. And I think that we all need to understand that, um, you know, as we look after ourselves and as we take care of ourselves and one another in this period and rejuvenate and, and plan and organise and um, and take stock and, and develop our... BPU and other organisations are doing right now is developing the theory and, and getting ready to reapply it. Um, we need to just, yeah, we need to we need to keep our eyes on the prize. Mm -hmm. People have been un undertaking this struggle for a hundred years um, since the British mandate, and certainly seventy-five years in the most extreme version against the Zionist entity itself. Um, we, you know, we're part of a legacy, and and and, and that Palestinian um, lifeblood of of resistance beats in our in our veins, and we need to. We need to um, open ourselves up to that reality and understand that we're small parts um, doing something really important in a big, long struggle, and we must be very proud of ourselves for that, and we must keep, keep, keep at it, keep educating ourselves, keep reading history, keep reading theory, keep looking after each other and replenish so we can keep taking action. Amazing. Thank you so much, Doug Lewis. That was, I think, the perfect point to end on. But, yeah, thank you so much for having... Um, yeah, coming on the show with you a limited time, but also... Yeah, reaffirming and reassuring people that we did a really important thing um, and that, you know, there's lessons and wins and we can take it into the future. But I hope you have a really wonderful day I hope, and a gentle day. <laughs> you, you're welcome, guys. Got to jump on the bus now. So you guys have a beautiful day. Solidarity forever. See ya. See ya. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and 
um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard a conversation between Declan Ferber-Gillick of Black People's Union. Declan is an Arnda man based up in Mbantua and uh, was down doing some incredible work in NARM, uh, including at the WebDoc community picket. Um, so, yeah, that conversation between Inez and Declan, I think, really important in terms of reflecting on the win that was the picket and uh, the, yeah, the incredible uh, power of community action. Um, now we are joined by Narita Waite, Yorta Yorta Naranjeri and Tongarung Tongarung person and CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, uh, who's joining us to speak about Val's 2024 Invasion Day webinar, uh, which is going to be running today from 4 p.m. ADT. And this year's discussion will focus on treaties and First Nations justice with overseas First Nations legal expert Andrea Hilland Casey, member of the Newark Nation on the Pacific Coast of Canada, and Nati Kahungunu, academic Dr. Carwin Jones, who joins Narita and Ruben Berg, Gunajamaraman, and co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. Registrations for today's conversation are still open at tinyurl.com forward slash ID24 webinar. So make sure that you sign up. And good morning, Narita. Good morning. Thanks very much for making the time to to join us. I know it's always a big ask in the lead up to Invasion Day. So I just wanted to uh, reiterate that we really appreciate it. Not a problem. Um, I myself today heading out to Raven Hall after Survival Day, so um, really looking forward to connecting with Mob inside. Yeah, and um, it's I think you know that that's such important work that Val's does um, in terms of making sure that uh, all members of um, the Aboriginal community in Victoria uh, feel connected and feel included and are heard. You know, at all times of the year. Uh, so. Actually, on that, connecting to, to Mob Inside, I thought we might begin by discussing an initiative that Vals has been integrally involved in, which is raising some serious concerns about the Victorian government's failure to meet Australia's obligations under the Optional Protocol to the Convention Against Torture, or OPCAT, uh, because last week Vals partnered with a range of Victorian legal and community organisations to reiterate the urgency of Victoria meeting OPCAT compliance with the one-year anniversary of the miscompliance deadline passing on the 20th of January. Uh, January, sorry. So what does this failure mean for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Victoria? And what does it kind of signal in terms of the state government's appetite for transforming its relationship with First Nations people here? Mm. Aboriginal people are the most over-incarcerated peoples on earth. And a big reason for that is that we're over-policed. Being over-policed and over-incarcerated means that we're more likely to be in custody. Because of a whole range of factors that are highlighted in things like closing out targets, there's also more likely to be held in other places where we're detained. So think health facilities um, and accountability and transparency in places of detention is really, really important for our people. Um, as I said, we're overrepresented in those places, but we're also more likely subject to mistreatment and torture in places of detention. And it's pretty bad in Victoria at the moment. We've just gone through a decade with a former Labor Premier, Daniel Andrews, spent billions upon billions of dollars 
on police and prisons, but effectively nothing on accountability and transparency in those spaces. Um, we also have the largest police force in the nation. Just before the pandemic, there was about 7,500 people in Victoria's prisons, up from around 4,500 a decade before that, and about 3,000 at the turn of the century. The government was bleeding so much money into the carceral system to expand capacity for all of this. And we know that the Productivity Commission um, has shown that really um, not only are our spending on police prisons growing at twice, twice rate of jurisdiction, but it's also not working. Um, mm. And when what we are seeing is continual, and I mean continual increases in abuse and corruption in prisons, um, and, you know, it goes from, you know, varying degrees, but... Um, despite report after report, whether it's the Ombudsman, whether it's the Productivity Commission, um, whether it's the United Nations Special Rapporteur, um, we don't see any improvement on transparency and accountability. We see often dodging of these questions. Um, we see deferring it to the, to the Commonwealth because it is obviously um, an obligation falling out of the international treaty the Commonwealth signed up to. But that's not good enough. Um, if you can spend billions on prisons and police, um, you can spend a bit on making sure that um, those systems um, have a degree, a high degree of transparency and accountability given the power that they wield over people mm. day in, day out. And that's why, for me, um, until we see some independent detention oversight implemented in Victoria, um, we can't say um, to any degree of certainty um, that we will continue. We will see our people be safe in prison because at the moment all we're seeing is continual death in custody, continual abuses, um, and nothing to address it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that also leads us quite well into the topic of Val's Invasion Day webinar, which is going to be focusing on the themes of treaty and First Nations justice. And, um, you know, thinking about these international obligations that uh, Victoria and the and the Commonwealth has failed to, to meet, can you speak to the significance of First Nations peoples across so-called Australia, both appealing to international law mechanisms to address specific injustices in this place, and also in insisting on the relevance of an internationalist framing to properly grapple with political relations between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples when it comes to talking treaty? Mm, sure. Uh, just on the outside, I just want to, I suppose, let the audience know that um, this idea of a treaty in Australia is not new. Um, it goes back decades, it goes back generations. Um, if um, you know, It goes back to the point um, of invasion. Um, so this isn't something new. Um, this is something that has been thought about, that has been deeply, deeply required to reset the relationship. And as we know, the colonial legal system in modern Australia was founded on the law of terra nullius. That's our original sin. Um, and the colonial legal system in this place has always been designed and used to justify the genocide of our people and the oppression of our people. Now, whilst, um, you know, methods have changed since the point of invasion, um, the outcomes continue to be incredibly poor for our communities. We continue to be subjugated. We continue to be, um, you know, overrepresented both in the criminal legal system and child protection. Um, there's a critical lack of housing, of economic viability, all the things um, that ensure that people can be free, well and safe. Um, and... What we've really seen um, is that even when 
the system has worked in our favour to some degree, like, say, the Marbo decision, a lot of those wins have subsequently been unwound by courts and politicians. I'm sure everybody can remember Howard-era politics on land rights. So it's really difficult to work in that system, although, of course, we have to do that to survive, but international frameworks can help drive change a bit more sometimes. They're not perfect, um, but they offer a better hope than what we've got currently. You know, the colony here can turn a blind eye to a lot of shameful things if the story is told domestically. But the colony is less comfortable having its dirty laundry aired out international forum. I also think that a very conservative colonial system, and it's really adverse to experimenting with public policy. So looking to international examples that have worked can help us transform the systems in this place with a little less resistance than more novel proposals. And there's a long history of Aboriginal people appealing for change on the national level. Bob Hawke resisted calls for the Royal Commission to have in custody until our people went and spoke to the UN about it mm-hmm. um, because he wanted to be seen as leader of international issues like apartheid in South Africa and certainly didn't want some black fellows from his own country um, saying, hey, you've got some issues down here in your own backyard that you might want to fix first. Um, so that's just an example of how um, that kind of advocacy at the international level has played an important role um, in moving things incrementally forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this, you know, there has been a really long history of um, Aboriginal people appealing to international legal mechanisms and as well of the Australian government, um, you know, disavowing responsibility at the domestic level to address Aboriginal people's concerns and saying it's not within the jurisdiction um, of the Commonwealth um, and suggesting even that things go to an international level, including um, on questions of sovereignty over land. Um, Now, I understand that several overseas First Nations experts from both Northern Turtle Island and Aotearoa will be joining you in discussion this afternoon. So what role do you see for sharing knowledge between First Nations from different settler colonies in furthering a robust treaty process in this place, alongside the work of the Uruk Justice Commission, which I understand also will be making recommendations as it conducts its investigations about steps towards treaty in Victoria? Um, yes. Uh, again, might I just mention from the outset, we've got an awesome panel today. Um, I know it's at 4pm, which is not the most convenient time for everyone, but if you can make it, um, I urge you to do so. We do cap our registrations at 1,000, so I think we've got 100 spaces left, um, because there's not often you'll have a range of experts ready to actually sit down and discuss this deeply, and this is what our panel will do. Um, in terms of Europe, it's important to note that they actually already have started making recommendations about steps towards Treaty Victoria. Um, they've done this in relation to child protection and criminal justice in their first interim report. Um, but um, in terms of your overall question, we know that there's a lot of fear among certain groups of white people, particularly old white men, about the implications of treaty for them. There's this view that if you give Aboriginal people something or enhance their rights um, or recognise their place in this country, that means you're taking away um, from everybody else in society. It's blatantly not true. Um, We also saw this in the referendum debate. Um, We saw it in Native Title in the Howard era. Um, We see this this narrative um, go over and over again that if... Our rights are enhanced if our place in society um, is risen to that to be equal to others and everybody else is missing out. Um, and then they wonder why we get upset. Um, and we also see that um, in terms of our own communities, 
there's a lot of appetite around, well, what can it actually treat look like to actually practically close the gap? Um, because generations of policies from government aren't working. So what can we do um, ourselves within the treaty framework um, to make that happen? Um, and we also see that um, you know, our communities are finally having a chance to actually dream about things that they haven't been able to, um, a future where they can be self-determining, um, where their rights can be respected. Um, and we also know that um, when we look at treaties in other places, um, there's some really good things that have come. Um, but there's also some things that we need to be aware of, some hurdles that we might face in the future that we could avoid. Um, and we also know that um, in New Zealand, for example, we're seeing a government wind back a lot of the gains from their treaty processes. Um, in Canada, many tribes feel that treaties and delivery and governments aren't accountable for their commitments. So it's important for us that we not only learn from the success, but we learn from some of the failures as well so that we can start from the best possible point on our treaty journey because treaty for Victoria means a better future for everyone. Mm, absolutely. Um, and I know that, you know, this thinking towards the future um, and, you know, the intention of the, the Invasion Day webinars in general are you know, have a big role in sort of agenda setting um, for the year and thinking about how, uh, you know, we continue to rework relations uh, both at, at a social level, but, you know, very tangibly in the political and legal sense. And I know that VALS continues to prioritize anti-racism and challenging colonial violence both inside and outside of the courtroom. So could you give us an insight into some of the organization's core priorities for this year from our vantage point at the beginning of 2024? Yes, and you're certainly right. There hasn't been a quiet year that I can remember. Um, and 2024 is certainly not going to be quiet either. Um, we will be um, looking at, obviously, making sure that bail reform um, is implemented correctly, um, as well as monitoring the implementation and decriminalisation of public intoxication, because these were two important reforms that came with the came out of um, the death of two Aboriginal women, um, Veronica Nelson and Annie Tanya Day. So it's important for us um, that it's not just um, celebrating the announcement. Um, you also have to monitor um, and evaluate the implementation. Um, we also know that um, for us, there's going to be a lot of work in relation to treaty. We know that Uruk handed down recommendations in relation to transforming trial protection and criminal justice. Um, and we'll be kept busy with trying to look at what does that actually look like? What will work for communities? Um, and what will work for generations to come so that any change is long-lasting as well as impactful? Mm -hmm. um, we'll also um, be doing um, a lot of work with the government to look at how we can address over-policing and over-incarceration of our communities. Um, we know, um, for example, the government has said it, it intends to bring a justice bill to Parliament this year, which will include reforms to raise the age of criminal responsibility. Um, and that's obviously a positive reform. Um, but the timetable going to 14 by 2027 is obviously less than ideal. So that'll continue to be a bone of contention. Uh, we'll also see um, continuing work around, obviously, OPCAT, because we're getting nowhere fast with that. Um, we'll see um, continued work in relation, in relation to um, our age pension test case. Um, we'll also see the expansion of our mental health legal service 
um, to ensure that our people who um, are detained inside mental health facilities um, have their rights protected but also their voice heard. Um, and we'll also see um, continued expansion into regional Victoria to make sure that we're basing lawyers and services where communities are because justice should be determined by postcode. Mm-hmm. So that's some of the stuff going on. Um, if we talk about all of it, I think we'll be here all day. So if anybody's <laughs> interested in what else we've got going on, please head to our website at www.bow.org.au. Perfect. And that's also where uh, listeners can find a, a place to donate to Val's work because as we've spoken about previously, Narita, you know, this work is so underfunded um, and yet so vital. Um, so, yeah, encourage listeners to head over to vals.org.au and to donate as well if you have the capacity. Thank you so much for speaking with me this morning. Not a problem. Have a lovely morning. Bye. You too. And that was Narita Waite, Yorta Yorta Naranjeri and Tongaroon person and CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, who spoke with us about Val's 2024 Invasion Day webinar, which is running today from 4 p.m. AEDT. And this year's discussion is going to be focusing on treaties and First Nations justice with overseas First Nations legal expert Andrea Hilland KC, member of the Newhawk Nation on the first, uh, Pacific coast of Canada, and Nati Kahungunu academic Dr. Carwin Jones, joining Narita and Ruben Berg, Gunich Marman and co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria. And once again, you can find more information about the work that VALS does and donate to support that vital work at VALS.org.au. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. This summer, wildlife are feeling the heat of climate change. Wildlife becomes stressed and unwell in hot weather and every summer Wildlife Victoria receives tens of thousands of calls for wildlife assistance. You can make a positive difference to the future of wildlife by donating to Wildlife Victoria. Your donation will help us rescue and care for heat-affected native animals. The future of wildlife is in your hands. Donate to Wildlife Victoria at wildlifevictoria.org.au Wildlife Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Now, we're going to listen to uh, a pre-recorded segment. This is a replay of um, a welcome to country given by Bunwurrung elder Janet Galpin at uh, the Tanner Minerway and Mabohiner commemoration, which was held this past Saturday at the 20th of January at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Streets in Melbourne City. And Janet talks about her ancestor, Manalarjana, at this annual commemoration, and I think provides a really... Um, some really important context tying uh, the Tasmanian Aboriginal resistance uh, into, uh, you know, ongoing resistance and activism in this place. Uh, so Tanner Minaway and Mobboy Hinner were two Tasmanian Aboriginal freedom fighters who were brought to and hanged in Victoria, the first people to be officially executed in Melbourne. And the commemoration runs every year to really put a spotlight on their resistance and to to honour them as freedom fighters Um who, you know, fought against some of the bloodiest uh, colonial campaigns in Tasmania's Black Wars. So we'll listen to that Welcome to Country by Bun Wurrung Elder Janet Galpin now. Waminjika. Waminjika is the Bun Wurrung language word for come with purpose. So Waminjika, Miram, Bik Bik. 
Bunwarang, named Dirt Barupton, Atawilan. Come with purpose to our beautiful home, land of the two bays. Today we also pay our respect to the Wurundjeri of the Woiwurrung, with whom we share many common boundaries throughout our lands, and our respect to any Wurundjeri here with us today. I always feel privileged to be able to speak with you and to talk about our people. So today it's my purpose here to deliver a welcome to country. So welcome to all of you and welcome to our beautiful country. We pay our deep respect today to all of you and we have the pleasure of welcoming you from whichever country you are from. And to acknowledge that we are all here today for the Tanaminaway and Malboyhena Commemoration 2024. Not just to remember them, but also to honour them as warriors who were hung here till they died for killing two white men. And Joseph will talk to you more about these young boys shortly. But they were warriors and they were unjustly murdered in avenging the death of their countrymen. These two young men were hung here till they died in the prime of their lives and not ever to be taken back to their country where they belonged. It was the white men who caused this grievous and heinous crime that they died as a result of colonisation and bastardy of this country. And today we remember them. I'm a direct descendant from our First Peoples and cousin to Nawi, Dr. Ka Professor, sorry, Carolyn Briggs, AM, who is the elder of the Bunwarang. And I'm here today also representing Nawi, who I always pay the deepest respect to. The Bunwarang could not have a more committed visionary to ensure that there is a future for her people. A holder of knowledge that Nawi is instrumental in passing on to younger generations. So they know who they are. They know where they're from. They know their ancestors. That they have that sense of identity and of belonging to their families and people. And to also have that sense of their history and are at one with the country of the land beneath their feet. We are the custodians of the lands that extend from the Wilson's Promontory in the east to the mouth of the Werribee River in the west, encompassing both of our beautiful bays. Western Port we call Murren and Port Phillip we call Nam. Sorry, they didn't provide me with a page turner. <laughs> so today we meet on the country of our ancestors. We pay our respect not just today, but always to our ancestors, those people who came before us. And we're especially pleased to recognise the commitment that you've made here today in paying respect to the spirit of this land and to our First Peoples. Through this, you have shown the willingness to honour sacred ground. We are the oldest living, surviving culture in the world. And this is something we want all Australians and peoples of other countries to connect to. Australia also has the world's oldest oral stories. Our first peoples engraved the world's first maps and the earliest paintings of ceremony were made by our first peoples 
and also the very first footprints on this continent were those belonging to our First Peoples. First Nations people across Australia all share a special connection to the lands and the waters of their ancestors that has not been disconnected from the millennia despite dispossession, displacement, discrimination, racism, poisonings and massacres that we have experienced over the last 200 plus years. So we ask that you recognise and celebrate that our First Nations people have occupied and cared for this continent for well over 65,000 plus years. We invite all Australians and peoples of other countries that are here with us today to embrace the ancient history of this country, a history that dates back thousands of generations. Now, Joe knows sometimes when he gets me up here to speak, I've got a lot to say. And I don't normally talk about um, my family, my ancestors. Um, but today, I want to share some of it with you. And it would be very remiss of me to neglect my own ancestor, Manalagena. So I also pay respect to those here today. Some have come from Tasmania, who I can see have been at, no, Manalagena Day, no. <laughs> but he has a fire stick made of paper bark, which is beautiful. So Manalagena was the last sheep of the great tribes of Tasmania, who died on Flinders Island in 1835 after being forced to leave his country along with other nations of people, only approximately 200 of them. They left under the threat of death, that if they didn't go, that they would be killed by the government that was sanctioned by the government. And the deal was struck, a verbal deal, to, for Manalagena and his people to leave Tasmania. So it was a verbal treaty to vacate or die. Manalagena was a very proud warrior and led the Black Wars in Tasmania. The Black War was a period of violent conflict between British colonists and Aboriginal Tasmanians from the mid-1820s to 1832. And Manalagena was greatly admired, even by the white establishment, for the tactical fights that he led. Manalagena died in 1835, a broken man pining for his country. They used to sit on the shore, the shore of Flinders Island, and stare out across the water to the homeland. They knew that they would never be returned to their country. And Manalagena's second wife, Tanlia Bonya, died six months later. But his daughter, Waltamaltu Yena, survived. And her husband, George Briggs, so I know a lot of you here know the Briggs name because that's a Victorian name, but the originator was George Briggs who married Waltamaltu Yena and that's where our Tasmanian and Victorian sides come from. Her husband, George Briggs, he sold Walter Baltiena for a guinea to another man. He was lucky he got paid because back then they traded women and dogs alike, mostly for nothing. Page turner again. 
Oh, I can't do it. <laughs> Thank you. So somehow a group of these Tasmanian Aborigines back from Flinders Island made it to the Mauritius Islands. And they were stranded there for a number of years before the government sent a ship to bring them back. So by the time that Walter Multiena was returned to Flinders Island, she could speak French, which was quite an amazing thing. <coughs> Excuse me. Walter Multiena, when returned to Flinders Island, her daughter, Dolly Dalrymple, Mount Garrett Briggs, my th three times great-grandmother, wrote a petition to the governor begging that her mother be allowed to return to Tasmania and live out her days with her family. Dolly was a very famous woman in her own right and was reported to be the first half-caste born in Tasmania. So by 1837, only about 47 of our people on Flinders Island had survived and they were transferred to Oyster Cove, south of Hobart, to live out their lives in abject poverty. So I can actually tell you these stories because they're not just my history, but they're also my cousins, aunties, uncles, and all their ancestors too. And we have a right to be able to talk about our people. We have a right to talk about our history. And we also have every right to be proud of all these people from whom we are descended. Their blood, their spirit, and their tenacity is also a part of us who are still here today. A much, much younger cousin in her 20s, just in this last week, was on Flinders Island at the graveyard where these people who were taken from Tasmania were buried, approximately about 107 of them. And she messaged me to say, I knew our history was sad, but wow, I felt so enraged with anger, heartbreak and frustration. And there was a very intense feeling. It felt so incredibly heavy being there. And as much as my heart felt broken, it actually felt like my world was spinning a very very odd feeling. And this from a young woman 189 years later. I sent back saying, yes, it will feel of death and despair of a people who were removed from their homeland under the threat of death, only to die there in that place. But do not fear, for they are no longer there but you were left with the death and despair of that place. And it still sits in the air. And this means that you are in touch with your ancestors and have walked where they walked and have been where they've been. But their spirit doesn't live in that place. Their spirit is carried with you. That is what you are feeling. And also the raw emotion of that place and this goes for Tanaminaway and Malboyhena too, in this spot here, that their spirit and their presence is still here. And it's so fitting that we honour them. And we have to also honour all our ancestors and everybody that we have come from. 
these things we still carry within us. Some people call it intergenerational trauma, which partly it is. Much the same as any family whose ancestors went off to fight in any of the world wars. These people came home as heroes and were given land. Our people came home from fighting the white man's wars and were given nothing. Returned to the riverbanks to live in humpies, not even to have a job. When other people got soldier settlement farms, which interesting enough have probably all been disbanded by now many generations later... But there's no difference in us being able to speak about our people and other people honouring their past and their dead. So I'm just going to finish off that our ancestors, they live on in us. And that is why our people are a spiritual people, because we actually still feel them. All right. And that was Boonwurrung Elder Janet Galpin giving a welcome to country and discussing her ancestor, Manor Largena, at the annual Tunner Minaway and Moboyhiner commemoration this past Saturday, the 20th of January, at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Streets in Melbourne City. We're now going to go to an excerpt of the plenary discussion between Wayne Coco Wharton and Juran Bunjalini Robbie Thorpe, held on day two of the Australian Student Environment Network's Victoria training camp last week. And in this segment, Uncle Coco speaks about honouring a legacy of First Nations resistance and what it means to keep fighting for freedom against the genocidal Australian colony. My my background, I don't think you, you need to know much about mine if you really want to know much about mine, go and get me ASIO file or you can go and Google it and, um, or look at the police records, they're all public documents so um, there's, there's nothing much I can hide in, in, in my 62 years of being alive and, um, but I've been very fortunate in, um, in the A that I'm still alive B that I'm not in jail and um, diabetes or any of the other diseases haven't caught up with me. But, and um, one of the things that, it was, a, it was a relief to listen to young Kieran yesterday. I don't know if he's here today, but it was good to hear that he's, um, and he'll be talking again today, as will Robbie Thorpe. But my family, our, our the struggle, if you, you, you had to explain to a person from overseas what the relationship between the federal government of Australia and the other 20 million people that, that, that call Australia home at the moment and, and First Nations people, it's one of um, an illegal occupation and a Cold War relationship. I'm not an Australian, never been an Australian. There's never been a process to determine that I'm an Australian. I'm a free, free man. I live my life as a free man in an occupied country, a country that is occupied by force, 
therefore I'm classified by them as a criminal and an enemy. Both of those I wear with pride. Part of the colonisation process is acknowledging the areas of conflict and the truths and the untruths. I just explained to you about the coroner situation, you should have a look at it. Our desire at the, the, the start of the invasion, at one point my people were free people, the next morning they woke up after the first shot was fired, we became the enemy, we became the criminals, we came, became everything that was bad. Many of our people from Tasmania around to Perth had council had discussions, had meetings, and decided to go to war against the invaders. Pemaway, Dundalee, Yagan, Truganini, Windradine, many that I can't even recall their names decided the best way to protect their country and their family and their rights and their freedoms was to go to war against the invader. Many parts of our country didn't undergo that process. Many Aboriginal people in this country didn't have that opportunity to defend their country. But for many of our nations around the coastal areas, they did. The proof of that's found in a declaration by Macquarie in 1816, whereas he as the governor of the colony declared war on our people in response. And he said that he gave the order to the colony to go out and shoot every black fellow they could find and hang them their carcasses from the trees. Ever since that real-time war took place, the political machine has tried to manufacture an alternative settlement of this country. That Cold War process, which is a, has been the manufacturing of bullshit lies and, and legislation, has been the battlefield for the last 230 years. It's fought with, in the halls of Parliament, it's fought in the, the state parliaments, it's fought at the local government levels, it's fought in the 
the institutions, the universities, the schools, it's fought in the courts. It's an ongoing process that I was born into 62 years ago. I've never known anything else than legislation defining how my life was to be lived from the time I woke up until the time I went to sleep. For my grandparents, for their parents, much worse. But through that, and how we arrive to this point, has always been the un, 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 undying desire to be free. To have that freedom that we had, that my great-great-great-grandfather had before colonisation. Our campaign has always, our, our fight has always been to be free in our own country. I'm not going to go through a, a geography question, I'm not going to outline, I think it's a given that most of you know that there's, there was over 300, 400 nations that occupied this continent. We occupied this continent by complying to our law, living our law, practicing our religion, honouring the treaties that existed between one another. The imposition of another law upon our law and our religion can't be termed as, as anything else other than assimilation. Prior to the objective of, 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 of genocide, of total annihilation, of blackfellas in this continent, came the, the process of assimilation. The, um, the colonial process and the, the colonial ongoing dispossession of our, 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 our law, our land, our religion, our freedom, is something that many, many Aboriginal people, First Nations people, have picked up the bat and the stick to be able to fight and to advance. Over the years, over the, the many years, it's um, and over my short time involvement, the last 40 years or so, I've had the pleasure to, to work and, and work with a lot of, lot of people and other countrymen around the, around the place. 
and as well as a lot of allies around the, the country. I guess um, when we look at what happened and what took place in the last 12 months, and I'm not going to dwell on it, it was a terrible distraction, an absolute waste of time, and that's basically all I'm going to say about it. What I want to talk about is how people globally strive for that human and birthright of being free, of being free people. You start with the early invaders that were brought here by chains. They came from a system of, of serfdom where your local lord there was no rights in, in in Britain for the average for the, the average person that lived under the the, the, the law of the the lords within seventeen seventy. That's why they ended up here in the mob of bloody prison boats in you know in the middle of Sydney Harbour. So it's always been a, a process of and, and under desire of, of human beings around the world to be free. And, ha and having justice. What we've seen is seven royal families during the 1700s divvy up the world into dominions of their own abuse and privilege. We've seen whole nations like Jamaica, built on stolen land and stopped by slaves. We've seen the imperialism take place in Canada, North America, here, South Africa, Many parts of Africa. The whole desire of each one of those, those, those situations was the suppression and the exploitation of those people. And that was an excerpt of the plenary conversation between Wayne Coco Wharton and Jaron Bungelini Robbie Thorpe held on day two of the Australian Student, Student Environment Network's Victoria training camp last week. And in that segment, Uncle Coco spoke about honouring a legacy of First Nations resistance and what it means to keep fighting for freedom against the genocidal Australian colony. And please make sure to follow Treaty Before Voice for updates on how to keep supporting sovereign First Nations resistance organising, guided by staunch lifelong activists, including Uncle Coco and Uncle Robbie, on both Invasion Day and year-round. And we'll have that information in our show notes. 
Now, our final segment today is a little snippet of a webinar co-convened by Hirak and Black People's Union on Saturday, the 20th of January, featuring Kieran Stewart-Asherton and Leah House of Black People's Union in conversation with Amal Nasser, Jamal Nabulsi, Lena Kalelat of the Palestinian collective Hirak. And the excerpt we're playing today includes commentary by Kieran and Leah on decolonizing your mind, what real solidarity means, and debunking the con of reconciliation. Look, as I was saying, like right at the start, right, we have to we have to reckon with the reality that we live in. Now, you know, when we start talking about decolonization, how non-indigenous people can, you know, help with decolonization, first thing I need you to do is go out and decolonize your own mind. You know, why do we have people living here who recognize that Australia is a colonial occupation, recognize it's an imperialist power, recognize it upholds genocide, both here and abroad? but still identify as Australians. It's no different to if I moved to Palestine and identified as an Israeli, like realistically, if we're being realistic. It's no different to if I went back to South Africa in the 1980s and identified as a white South African in their apartheid era. Don't identify as an Australian. Cure the Australian in your head. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because to be an Australian is to be anti-Indigenous. Anti-indigeneity is synonymous with the Australian culture and the Australian way of life. You cannot be Australian and pro-Indigenous. If you're Australian and you identify as Australian, you identify with Australian culture, I'm sorry, but you identify as anti-Indigenous, whether you realise it consciously or not, that is what is happening. The reality is here in this continent, regardless of people's gender, their age, their education or their political beliefs, 75% of people on this continent hold anti-Indigenous beliefs. Three out of every four people are anti-Aboriginal here in Australia. Something like 65% of people here in Australia have never even spoken to a black fella, or if they have, they didn't know it was a black fella when I was speaking to them. Two thirds of Australians never spoke to a black fella, three quarters of Australians hate us, whether they consciously realise it or not. The first thing that needs to happen is people need to start, you know, recognising their own internal biases, recognising their own cognitive issues, recognising their own identities and start to challenge those inside yourself. Kill the Australian in your head. That's, yeah, something major that needs to happen. Um, we can't really move forward with actual physical material decolonization so long as we have a populace that 75% of is against us. We really need people to do the work in their own minds, challenge their own thoughts, their own beliefs, their own you know, false education of being fed about us before we can actually start to make progress. Because until people do that, we can't have proper allies. And at the end of the day, I don't even want allies. I want accomplices. I don't want someone who's you know, some tokenistic ally. I want an accomplice who's willing to stand side by side with me on the front line, who's willing to do what needs to happen, willing to you know, go all out, just as hard as us blackfellas are and be our accomplices, take the heat, take the blame, take the four along with us. Otherwise, allyship, without that accomplice aspect, it's not worth anything. Now, it's the same as you know what I've been saying about our solidarity with Palestine at all the rallies and stuff I've been speaking at. It's great to stand in solidarity with Palestine, but solidarity means nothing unless it's coupled with material support we need to be materially supporting the people of Palestine. And same as decolonising here in Australia, non-Indigenous Australians, 
need to be providing material support to First Nations resistance, not just standing in solidarity with us, not just giving tokenistic acknowledgements of countries and whatever the hell else, but actually standing with us in our struggle and in our fight. And sorry, what was the other part of the question? Oh, reconciliation and its connection with the Zionists. Mate, this goes back to the 1990s, if not earlier. Like, it's, it's so entwined. Um, it's part of the reason, like, in the BPU, we were so against the voice to parliament because we went and we looked at who was behind it all. We looked at who the authors of the Uluru Statement was. It wasn't a bunch of blackfellas. It was people like Mark Liebler, who, um, for those who don't know who Mark Liebler is, what's the acronym stand for? It's like the Australian-Israeli-Jewish Association or some crap like that. No, the Zionist Federation is Mark Lieber, his son. Yeah, his son is the chairman of, um, his son Jeremy is the chairman of the Australian Zionist Federation. But yeah, his father, Mark Liebler, was one of the main people who were behind the Uluru Statement. And, you know, the Uluru Statement was, you know, portrayed as this great, like, act of reconciliation and whatever else and stuff. And, you know, it was going to really help blackfellas. But if you actually analyse what was on offer, it was nothing. It was literally nothing, except a way to illegally, well, legally, I should say, immorally and legally, under international law, seed First Nations sovereignty into the Australian constitution. You know, we're sovereign people here. We have maintained our sovereignty for the last 236 years now. We haven't given it up. We've never surrendered it. We've never signed any treaties, any truces. We've never actually been fully, um, what's the word? Not conquered. We've never been fully conquered here on this continent. We still have our sovereignty under international law. The referendum last year was a way of taking that away. And that's all reconciliation is about. It's a way of assimilating us into Australian culture. It's not reconciling, it's assimilation. All of these reconciliation points are forms of assimilation. And even when we look at stuff like Woolies, you know, everyone's giving Woolies a big old clap on the back and a big old applause at the moment because they're not going to sell some crappy cheap plastics with Australian flags on it anymore. Woolies isn't an ally to First Nations people. You know, under the Woolworths uh, Reconciliation Action Plan, they were using blackfellas as free labour, literally exploiting us as free labour. And that's their reconciliation. That's the idea of reconciliation here in the colony. That's how ridiculous it is. Um, we don't want reconciliation. We want a reckoning. Very different things. Don't want reconciliation whatsoever. I want a reckoning here on this continent. But the moment you say that as a black fellow in organisations, when you, when because we all, any, any black fellow will listen to this right now can vouch, you always, you got, there's going to be token blacks in organisations or just black fellows in identified positions. And we always, uh, we always get hit up to help do the right plan. They want a reconciliation action plan. And the second mob say, no, I'm not interested. Um, you're the bad guy. And we become the problem. We, um, get placed in that box of being um, causing division where, where, the, where the issue, where the problem, and that's kind of the way we get labelled as, and, yeah, I just I just laugh at it. I've never, yeah, just never supported. The reconciliation's just never jived with me, um, and I think it's the same with a lot of these spaces, though, like um, 
constitutional recognition that when you, me, unity came out, all these different movements, that the ultimate goal has always been assimilation and everything that's popped up over the last several decades have been distractions for for our communities and they have very successfully fractured our communities as well and caused a lot of division, a lot of distraction and pulled us away from what the ultimate goal has always been, which has been our liberation, our sovereignty to be enacted and how can we implement our sovereignty to its full extent, which we should be able to. And I have no doubt that if we were doing that, we'd be met with the exact same violence that Palestine is experiencing right now, Palestinians are experiencing right now. If here in Australia on this landmass, if mobs started actually enforcing our sovereignty, which is our right to do so, we would be met with that violence. Uh, but reconciliation is nonsense, in my opinion. Um, and I think Australians aren't ready for that conversation when we say, what is it that you think we need to reconcile with? I think Australians need to reconcile with their own history and how they came to be on this landmass in South South of Asia on black land, how they came to exist on this landmass, and they need to reconcile with that and then come back to the table once they've reconciled with their history, their true history, um, and how they've come to exist on this landmass and the history behind that. Then come to the table. Hmm. And like, that's the thing too, like, how can we reconcile with these people when our war is still ongoing? When we're still occupied, we're still being subjected to cultural and physical genocide. How can we reconcile with these people? And it's denied. On a, it's denied. What our experience is, it's the gaslight in which I'm, every Palestinian is experiencing right now. And we're watching play out on mainstream media. The gaslight and, and the denial that's right in front of our eyes that we're watching on our screens. But what here on this land must be watched day in, day out, our, an illegal occupying state on our lands. We watch that day in, day out. That's enforced day in, day out. And we're being told that's not what's happening, just like Palestinians and mainstream media are being told. This isn't real. What you are experiencing is not real. That's not the reality of it. And that was Leah House and Kieran Stewart-Asherton of Black People's Union speaking at a forum that Black People's Union uh, held with Hirak uh, this past weekend. That's all we've got time for today, and we'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.